So back, uh, it's actually last fall, um, our leadership team uh, got together and we went through a process of uh, trying to nail down uh, and just put into words who, who it is we are as a church and what it is that we care about. Uh, another way of saying that is what are our core values? And we came up with these four core values. So this is who we are as a church and this is what we care about. Uh, the first one is biblical truth. Uh, the second is worship. Uh, the third, community. And the fourth, outreach. Um, and so under those things, like there's a lot that falls under those different areas. But we identified, even as we were talking about this, that probably there's one in that list that we kind of hold first um, as kind of our, our most important to us uh, that informs and drives the other three. Um, so which one would you guess would be the one that is probably, that we would say is probably the most important to us? The biblical truth, right? Um, and we're all about the Bible here at Potter's. Um, my preaching, um, obviously, we, do, we go through Scripture. Um, we don't skip over the hard parts. We, we take those parts on. Uh, we hold it to be the Word of God. We, we can go so far as to say that we believe the Scriptures to be without error, that there's, there's no fault in them. In theological jargon, I would say that I believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, that it is without error. But what does that mean? I believe uh, that when the human authors wrote down the words that we ultimately have passed on and translated for us, they were inspired by the power of the Holy Spirit. In the words of Peter, they were carried along in the power of the Spirit. Um, and as such, as, they were do, as that was happening, they wrote down and conveyed to us the words of God. Now, it has the human element because you can, you can look at the different writings and you can, as you, you get familiar with the Bible, especially the New Testament, you can kind of tell who wrote this, right? Um, so when you spend a lot of time reading Paul, um, then the other things that Paul wrote, you're like, yeah, that sounds like Paul. Um, and as you get to know, as you spend time in John, and then you get into 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, you're like, yeah, that, that sounds like John. Um, and so we can see the human element in what they wrote, um, and, and I think that gives it even more beauty to the Scriptures. You can study their words and their language and the ling linguistics that they used and all of this, and uh, it's very, very interesting to look at. Um, but at the end of the day, I hold the Scriptures to be pure, to be authoritative, um, and to be trustworthy. And that's why we approach ministry a lot of the way that we do here at Potter's House. That's why uh, this is, is key. It's central to who we are. It's why it's the first of our core values as a church is our biblical truth. Um, our worship, uh, we, we love our worship, but the songs that we sing, we make sure the words are in line with biblical truth, right? Um, that's one of the, the things that we want to make sure happens. As we, as we talk about community, and that's an area that, that we want to start focusing on as hopefully we're coming out of COVID stuff, um, building that community and everything. Well, what kind of community do we want? We want biblical community. We want the kind of community that it talks about in Scripture, as we talk about our outreach, as we're talking about going out, like our kids camp this week, as 
like the mission teams we sent out, um, all that kind of stuff. What drives that? Biblical truth. We want the gospel to go forth from this place to other people in other places. And so, so we hold this to be um, very, very important to us. And then we come to passages like where we are today in Scripture. And if you want to turn there, it's John seven fifty three through 8, 11. Um, and if you have a Bible or even a Bible app or anything, you will notice something different here. Um, like my Bible, it starts with this tag. The earliest manuscripts do not include 753 to 811. All right? So what do we do with that? What does that mean? Well, well, like, what's, what's going on here? And so this passage in particular has spurred tons and tons of debate. As I'm sure you can imagine, people have spent careers in studying and writing about this topic in general, but specifically this passage. This is a key area for this debate, for this discussion on what does it mean if, if we hold that what John originally wrote were the words of God, but yet somewhere along the way from where John was to where we are today, we have this other section that may or may not have been there when John wrote it. Does that leave us just questioning the Bible? Does that leave us just saying, well, maybe we just need to throw this whole thing out? What are we to do? Oh, no. Well, before we get into despair, uh, let's, let's read it and see what it says, okay? So they went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the in their in, in sorry and placing her in the midst they said to him teacher this woman has been caught in the act of adultery now in the law Moses commanded us to stone such women so what do you say this they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him well Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. What an amazing story, right? I mean, we can all see why this, this story of just on-the-spot forgiveness and redemption happening right there is, is just so powerful. And as a Christian, like, there's so much that we just can identify with and resonate with in this story and seeing the compassion of Jesus and how he handled the situation. And so our hearts are naturally drawn straight to this story, right? And it's a very memorable story. Um, Those of you that have have been around the Bible uh, for a while probably are very familiar with this story. You've heard it before. And so so we're drawn to that. 
But then the debate comes in on the fact that the, quote, earliest manuscripts do not include this passage. So is, is this the Word of God? Is this inspired by the Holy Spirit um, in the words that John originally wrote? Um, and so, what should we do? I know what we can do. Let's just go look at the copy that John wrote, and then we'll know, right? Problem solved. Sad fact is we don't have that copy anymore. Uh, many said it's probably for the best, because if we did, we probably would end up like turning it into a shrine and bowing down and worshiping it uh, instead of the creator that it points to. Um, but uh, so we don't have that original manuscript anymore. Um, but as I was saying, there's a whole field of study uh, called textual criticism that has of these, these are very intelligent people. I've, I've met some of them personally. I had some of them as professors um, who have spent their lives, their careers, pretty much solely dedicated and devoted to studying this. And I want to warn you, as I would hear these guys teach on this stuff, it would bore me to death. <laughs> and yet here I am today teaching on this. So my goal is to not bore you to death but yet, help, help us to sort through how do we grapple with this passage. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a teacher thing today and uh, pull out the whiteboard. All right. So we're going full whiteboard on you today. So, so let's talk about how we got from where John wrote to where what we have today. Okay. So it, it all started... John uh, wrote the book of John, um, and in this language, we talk about the autographs. So the original would have been called the original autograph of John. Uh, and so, so John wrote the first one, and he wrote this around A.D. Uh, 90 to 100, somewhere in there, okay? So it was near the end of John's life. He's looking back on everything with Jesus, with the gospel and everything, and he's, he already probably has at his fingertips pretty much the rest of the New Testament. And so he, as an expert who lived through all of it, in his book, what we have is him looking back and saying, oh, here's some pieces that were missing. Um, this is really important for this part to be carried on as well. So that's why John has some unique stories and stuff compared to like Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so that's when John wrote his original, okay? So imagine your first century, second century church, you receive this original from the Apostle John. And you're reading this stuff that we've been studying for well, over a year now. We're only, in, only getting to chapter eight. Um, how valuable is that to you as a Christian? Are you kind of like, eh? No, you're like, wow, this is amazing stuff. So, so what, do you, what do you want? What do you want to do? Well, well, yeah, well, your friends over in the next town over, they need to know this, right? So you have your best writer in your whole church, get John's copy and copy it. Because you don't have a photocopier, right? You can't go to the back corner over there and, and run a copy of this thing. You don't have a printing press for another 1,500 years, right? Um, and so, so they make a copy and they send it the, to these guys. They make another copy and they send it to these guys. They make another copy and send it to these guys. Um, and then these guys make copies and these guys make copies. And they, they just, 
They keep making copies and copies and copies, all right? And that goes down through time until we get to the printing press. And when the printing press comes into play, um, everything becomes a lot more accessible. Um, and so mass production of, of things can go out. But for 1,500 years, it's handwritten copies. And even when it comes to, to translations and that kind of thing, it's all handwritten copies that get passed down. And, uh, and so we can look at that and we can say, well, that's not very reliable, right? Because, I mean, who here has perfect penmanship, right? What happens when, when a, a comma is dropped or, a, you know, a period is dropped? Or what happens if, if maybe, like in the case of this passage, one of the scribes that was sending it to one spot, you know, he fell asleep one night and he woke up the next morning and forgot where he was and skipped over a section, right? Like, what, what happens in that case? Um, and so, I say that not to make you doubt um, the reliability of Scripture, but for us to wrestle through it together and to think intellectually about this, okay? Because really what we have, since we don't have the original that he wrote, what we have, I think, is honestly better. Because if we had the original, it would, ha- it would be pretty simple to just go change that one if you didn't like something, right? Or if you wanted to add something, you just go change that one and then, then it's done, but when you're down here and when it comes to the whole New Testament, we have over 5,000. Don't you guys love my writing? Uh, we have over 5,000 different manuscripts uh, from those 1,500 years of handwritten copies uh, that include either the full New Testament or parts of it. And so you can look at those 5,000 copies and you can study all the differences and you can come to a pretty good idea of what the original had. Because it's not like you could, in this day and time, you could just round them all back up and change something, right? Because think about it. They went out everywhere, across the globe, by foot, all right? Like, that's, that's how this thing got passed on. And so, when you, when you pull all of that back together now, and we have digital scans of almost all of these now, and like, they're all in museums and stuff around the world, and uh, it's a whole, like I said, people devoted their lives to studying this, okay? Um, really encouraging for us, too, is to think about how much time transpired between the original writing and a copy that we have today, we actually have a section of the book of John. Um, what remains is about the size of a business card. Um, but it is from within 50 years of when John originally wrote. So we have a copy, um, a, a portion of a copy that goes back that far that has survived till today. Okay? So when we talk about the manuscripts, this is what we're talking about. Now, when our like my Bible says, the earliest manuscripts do not include, or some Bibles, some translations even say, the earliest and most reliable manuscripts do not include this section. Which manuscripts are they talking about? Uh, well, a group of the manuscripts that we have that have lasted the longest and are in the best shape um, are known as the Alexandrian manuscripts. Okay? Uh, if, now, if you're familiar with what that might mean, they were in Egypt. Okay? So think about it. Why, especially in the first 400 years, 400 years here, 
would we not have a lot of manuscripts left from that region, from that time period? I know my drawing's driving you crazy, Nikki. You're just like, (laughs) twitch, twitch, twitch. But in the first 400 years here, why would we not have a lot of manuscripts left? Well, one, they were written on a material called papyrus that honestly wasn't made to last for 2,000 years, all right? Uh, Like it's made from a plant, it was the best they had at the time, and you wrote on it, and you sent it to convey messages, but it wasn't designed to last 2,000 years. Uh, another thing, the first 400 years, uh, what was happening to Christians on the global scale? Persecution. They're being killed. Now, do you think the powers that be, as they were killing and executing Christians, burning them on poles to light the, light the city, do you think they were saying, oh, here's a valuable writing they had at their house. Let's protect this. No. Like, they're, they're getting rid of it. They're dumping it. Well, in Alexandria, in, in Egypt, you have less of that. They're, they still had persecution, but you had less of that. You also have a climate that's more prone to protect the papyrus. So you don't have the humidity, um, the mold, all the things that would destroy it, right? So from the first 400 years, we do have some manuscripts in the Alexandrian group, um, and those are considered uh, by many scholars to be the most reliable. Why? Because they're closer in time to when John originally wrote, um, and they're in better condition than others where you can still read them fairly well and that kind of thing. So, the question is on that, are they right? Because those are the ones that they're talking about here when they say the earliest manuscripts don't include this section. And so that is the manuscript evidence that, that as we come to, the, to this. But there's another factor um, that, that comes into this kind of study that, that we need to take into account as well. And that is the internal evidence. So that would be the external evidence. So what's the internal evidence? What does that mean? That means read it and does it seem like it fits? Um, read it, does it seem, are, are the word choices, in, in con, are they consistent with John's words, right? Or is this, is it totally different vocabulary in this passage? And there are several signs within the text as well that kind of lean to, well, maybe this wasn't John writing this. A uh, couple of, just in the flow of the text, it doesn't make the most sense um, because Uh, At the beginning of this section, he's teaching a large crowd, right? At the end of the section, he's left alone with the woman. And at the beginning of the next passage, he's teaching a large crowd. So that part kind of, it's like, well, it's not a deal breaker, but doesn't flow the most naturally. Also, if you read, read it just leaving this section out, there's a perfect flow uh, of, of what John is conveying from the section before this to this section. Um, another thing, uh, nowhere else in John, in the book of John, this is, again, not a deal breaker, but nowhere else does he record Jesus as sitting. Like, it just seems like a random fact that he would just throw in, on this one occasion, Jesus was sitting as he taught. Um, so why would all of a sudden John care about Jesus sitting just in this passage out of all that he wrote? I don't know. Um, also, the language that's used here of the scribes and the Pharisees, John doesn't usually refer to the scribes. Um, John usually refers to the Pharisees and the authorities, um, or, uh, yeah, so, so some of those internal things, these scholars that have looked at it, 
um, have come to the conclusion that, uh, well, maybe this wasn't in the original that John wrote. Um, some of those, I've uh, got some quotes here for you. One of those guys is a guy named Don Carson. He's a biblical scholar that has studied this stuff inside and out with his life. And he says this about this passage, despite the best efforts to prove that this narrative was originally part of John's gospel, the evidence is against them. And modern English versions are right to rule it off from the rest of the text or to relegate it to a footnote. Another one, Bruce Metzger says this, the evidence for the non-Johannian origin of the pericope um, of the adulteress is overwhelming. So, yeah. Do you need a translation of what he's saying there? <laughs> he's saying, yeah, I don't think John wrote it. That's what he's saying, all right? Um, and so, so where does that, that leave us? Um, it leaves me asking, well, where did it come from? Okay. Now to that, there are several options. One, it was in the original and these guys are wrong. Very possible fact, okay? Because as we were showing, they're basing off of one branch, pretty much. That they're saying it probably wasn't in the original. Well, if there was just one corruption in that branch, well then that explains where they come from. And then these other branches that we don't have the earlier copies of might have still passed it on and contained it. So it is viable that it was in the original. It's a possibility. Uh, it's also a possibility that, it, I mean, who can't remember this story, right? Like, it's a very memorable story. So it's very possible that it was passed down through oral tradition um, for many years uh, as something that as the church came together and they're talking about Jesus and forgiveness, they're like, oh yeah, and you remember when he did that? And then that gets passed on from generation to generation. And then somewhere after around that 400-year mark, one of the scribes that's doing the copying is like, you know, this story's not in here, but I, I think I'm going to just make note of it. I'm just going to put it down because as this gets passed on, we want to pass it on. And so it's possible that it's something that happened that was passed through oral tradition, um, but was later written in by a scribe. Uh, we also know that there were other writings um, early on that about Jesus and his life that were not considered equal with Scripture, but contained stories and history of, of Jesus and his life. I mean, Luke says in his book that he has studied and he's compiled sources and he's consulted those sources to put together his gospel, right? Um, and so we don't know what all those sources were, but we know they were there. So it's very possible that one of those sources included this story that was passed down for a while and then somebody threw it in. Um, some of the manuscripts actually include this story in different places. There's like three different places in the manuscripts that it shows up in John. And then one manuscript even has it in Luke, um, which is another reason why the, the scholars are like, we're not real sure that this fits here. It just seems like somebody was throwing it in somewhere. Um, and then a fourth option is somewhere along the way, some knucklehead just made it up, you know, like... That's, that's another option for where this came from. So you can, you can take your pick. You can think through what do you think happened? How do you think that this got here? But here's the question. 
for the preacher, what do we do with it? If, as I said, what we value is biblical truth, and we're questioning whether this story is part of that biblical truth, whether it was genuinely written by John, inspired by the power of the Holy Spirit or not. If that's in question, what are we to do with it? Well, going back to my two experts that I just quoted, they go on to say this. Don Carson says, there's little reason for doubting that the event here described occurred. He's he's saying, I don't think John wrote this, but I don't doubt that it happened. Um, Bruce Metzger also says, the account has all of the earmarks of historical veracity. Linda, that means historically true. Okay. Um, For the Bruce Metzger translations. But so our experts are telling us, these guys that have spent their life studying this, that while they don't think that John wrote this, they don't doubt that it happened, that it's very likely a true story. So, what are we to do? Here's what I propose we do. Let's look at what are the truth elements in this story. What is it that this story tries to convey? And let's see, does it measure up to Scripture? Is there anything in this story that contradicts the rest of Scripture? No, there's not. Is there anything in this story that without this story, we would not have this key doctrine or biblical truth? No. There's nothing that's like a deal breaker in this thing. Um, and so, so let's look at what we do see and then maybe qu- just ask, do we see this somewhere else in Scripture? Okay? So let's look at that. First thing, we see Jesus is being challenged to either reinforce the law by, by stoning this woman or show grace and thus be accused of being guilty of undermining the law. See, he's, he's in one of these catch-22s, no-win situations that they've thrown him in. And what we see is that Jesus ultimately shows his authority over the law by what happens in the story. Can we see that anywhere else in Scripture? Well, let's look at Romans 8. Romans 8 Uh, one through four, says this. And these words are not in debate at all as to Paul writing them. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit what is paul saying he's saying jesus fulfilled the law he fulfilled all of it he he completed it and he is in charge over it he has authority over it and he has the ultimate authority is what we see in scripture And that holds with what this story of the woman called in adultery is saying. Number two, next thing we see. So as Jesus told him, you you who are without sin, throw the first stone. What do we see from that? We see that we all stand guilty of sin. There was no one who could throw that first stone. 
Well, where, where can we see that in Scripture? Well, Romans 3.23 says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul just lays it out for us. Third thing we can see is that Jesus was the only one who could judge her as he was the sinless one in the scenario. The stipulation for throwing a stone was to be without sin. He was the only one there without sin. And yet he chose to forgive her instead. And so where can we see this kind of thing from Scripture? Romans 6.23 says this, For the wages of sin is death. What the woman deserved was death. What everyone who was around her accusing her deserved was death. What every single one of us deserves is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's the good news. It's that through Jesus and through his gift, through his grace, through his forgiveness, we're able to be made right with God. And just as he could forgive that woman, he can forgive you, he can forgive me, and he does that. Fourth thing I see there is, with the forgiveness, Jesus instructs her to go and sin no more. Now this is where Christianity today, we have some trouble, right? You're like, well, I don't know about that part. Really? Sin no more? I don't know if that's, that's, that's probably why this isn't real right? That's why this isn't supposed to be in there, because that, that Jesus would not have said that. Romans 6, starting in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. When you've experienced the forgiveness of Jesus and the new life that comes in him, then the response to that is a changed life. You no longer want to live in sin. Do we mess up? Sure. Do we fall back into all things? Absolutely. And we have to come back to him for his grace. But in our hearts, we cry out with Paul here, by no means do I want to keep doing that. By no means. I want, I want to live a life that is holy and acceptable to you, Lord, in response to your grace that has been given to me and your forgiveness. So what are our, ta- what are our takeaways from all this? So in all of this, what I hope you can see is that the Bible, what we have today, has been more highly scrutinized than any other document in history. No other document has had this happen to it. None. Anything else we have from this time period, at most, we have maybe like 10 copies. So anything we know about ancient Rome and all of that kind of stuff, like, yeah, it's a few copies that are out there. And those are just accepted, like, oh, yeah, here's what it says. But when it comes to the Bible, there's all of a sudden all of this scrutiny and everything. And I find it pretty amazing that as far as an actual, like, whole story um, or, like, whole section that's this long, 
this is pretty much the only one. Like there's maybe one or two other like sections that's, but this is the main one. And I'm like, okay, so the critics that want to throw out the whole Bible because it's untrustworthy because of the copying method and all of that, they're basing it on this? This is their whole thing? Like, the fact that a story is included about Jesus forgiving a woman? Like, that's, that, that's, your, that's your whole, that's the mountain you're dying on? Okay, go for it, buddy. Um, because the rest of it has been, it's all been scrutinized so heavily and that's why I can trust in the words that are in here are an accurate representation of what the original said. Now, yes, is it, when it comes to passages like this, do I need to study for myself? Do I need to dig into these things? Do I need to try to, try to sort through what did the original say? Sure, absolutely. That's what we want to get at. But I want to tr- let you know that you can trust the Bible. And for us here at a church, it is right for us to hold it as a core value. Second thing from today, Jesus has all authority. Third thing, we are all sinners. Fourth thing, Jesus forgives sinners. Fifth thing, in response to his forgiveness, we strive to sin no more. So that's the truth for you. Whether or not John wrote this, end of the day, I don't know. I've read a lot about it. What I do know is those five things up there. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you for the way that it was faithfully preserved for us through time. We thank you for those faithful scribes who would copy it, those who would pass it on from one town to the next, to the next, to the next, so that as your gospel spread, so did your word, because your word has power. And Lord, we thank you for your Holy Spirit that not only inspired uh, these words through John and, and uh, the book, in this book that we're reading and, and as we're studying it, but also carried that on through history to us today. God, we thank you for who you are and for your faithfulness to us. Pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.